welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Edward Witherspoon, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Colgate University, and he is here to talk about skepticism. Edward Witherspoon, welcome. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. I guess maybe we can begin with a little stage setting. Skepticism, at least of the extreme form that we'll be considering here, is the act of doubting that the external, real, physical, mind-independent world that surrounds me, for example, the table in this room, really exists. So why would I doubt that the table is really in front of me, that there really is a table? Isn't that something I know more certainly than anything else? Good. Well, let's put it this way. If there's anything that you know about the world at all, uh, the world, the environment around us, then certainly you know that there's a table in front of you. Now, the skeptic wants to say, well, okay, let's, uh, it's certainly true that you believe that there's a table here. What kind of justification can you offer for that belief? And the answer the skeptic imagines is, well, we'll say it's based on sense experience. The feel of it, the look of it, we get a lot of sensory information about the environment and about this table in particular. Then the standard skeptical argument is to try to raise a doubt about that basis for my belief to say, well, you have this experience that's serving as the basis for your belief. Couldn't you be having just the same experiences while you were dreaming? Haven't, couldn't you have a dream? In fact, haven't you had dreams that you're sitting at a table or uh, running across the lawn in your underwear or what have you? And in the course of that dream, you're having experiences which seem to present reality to you as the dreamer. And in the context of the dream, you don't have any tools for determining whether what's going on is really happening or not. The skeptical argument is an attempt to bring that thought to bear on your current experience and say, well, since the experience you're having now could be dreamt experience, whether it's dreamt experience or not, you can't right now tell whether you're dreaming or really experiencing the table. Because you can't tell that, you don't count as knowing. Because certainly if you know, you'd have to be able to rule out the idea that you might be dreaming it. And if you can't know that there's a table in front of you, something as basic as that, such a, a best case of knowledge gained through the senses, then you can't know anything at all about the environment. One parable put forth by the philosopher Hilary Putnam is, how do I know that I even have a body, that anything that I'm experiencing now is real? Because, you know, for all I know, maybe I'm just a brain in a vat somewhere, and uh, an evil scientist is making my neurons fire in such a way that it seems like I'm having this experience of an external world, but whereas in reality, I'm just part of a science experiment. Right. Yeah, good. That's, a, you know, a nice up-to-date sort of sci-fi version of the argument that I was sketching a moment ago. The argument that I was giving in terms of dreaming is, of course, the argument we found in Descartes' first meditation. And Putnam updates that, or maybe it's a slightly different argument from Descartes. Maybe it's a version of the evil genius argument from Descartes. That doesn't really matter for our purposes. <clears throat> but yes, precisely as you were saying, we're supposed to imagine the following rather chilling series of events. We're to imagine that we go to sleep one night, unbeknownst to us, mad scientists sneak into our chamber, anesthetize us, carefully excise the brain from our skull, put it in a vat of life-sustaining nutrients, hook up the input and output neurons to transducers controlled by a powerful computer. When all this is done, the scientists use those computers to stimulate the brain so as to produce the same brain activity that my brain would be performing were it still inside my body. And the conclusion we're to draw from this is that 
so that brain in a vat could be having just the same experiences that I'm having right now. And this leads to the same kind of skeptical conclusion. Can I tell right now that I'm having, as it were, genuine veridical experiences caused by the table and chairs that I see around me? Or am I in the situation of a brain in a vat receiving stimulations that erroneously cause me to believe all this? The thought experiment gets us to answer no. I couldn't tell whether I'm having real experience or brain in a vat experience. And so again, the conclusion is, if I can't tell that, then I can't know anything about my environment. Now, this seems like a very difficult challenge to answer because how do we justify to ourselves that we're really here and this isn't all just a dream or this isn't all just an elaborate virtual reality program running in a disembodied brain somewhere? Mm -hmm. Usually the way we justify such things to ourselves is we say, well, you know, my experience is really vivid and if I pinch myself, I don't wake up and so on and so forth. But it seems like no matter what such justification we seek, the brain in a vat skeptic is going to have an answer to it. The brain in a vat skeptic is going to say, no, that's just part of the... That's uh, just more stimulation of neurons that, that, right. could, that the scientists could arrange to happen in the brain. Exactly. So what are we to say? I mean, um, do we want to conclude that for all we know, uh, that you know, we could be brains in vats? Well, this is where I want to start developing a, an anti-skeptical strategy. To put what I'm going to say in context, I think it's an, a nearly universal assumption that the scenario I've just described of a brain in vat being stimulated so as to have experiences identical to a normal embodied human's experiences, that assumption is nearly ubiquitous in contemporary epistemology. But I think it's wrong. That is, I think the assumption that we can imagine that is a mere assumption and that when we start to think through what it is to have experience, what it is to uh, have thoughts, that we can recognize that this isn't really an intelligible scenario. We think we're imagining a brain having thoughts, but really we're not. And I want to kind of make this argument in two stages. I want to first say that there's no good reason to think that brains and vats can think. And then second, I want to say we actually have some good reasons to reject the claim that brains and vats can think. So I can maybe start with examining the kind of argument that somebody might give to support the idea that brains and vats can think. And that's going to be an argument about uh, the dependence of thought and experience on physiology. And the starting place of this thought is just fine. It says, well, talking about an embodied brain now, there's a causal dependence between my brain activity and the thoughts and experiences I have. If my brain weren't doing anything, then I wouldn't be having thought or experience. And by the same token, if my brain were doing something significantly different, from what it's now, if the physiological activity were significantly different, then I'd be having different thoughts and experiences. And it's natural to move from that thought to a claim that, so what it is to have a thought or experience is for your brain to be engaged in a particular form of activity. It's natural to embrace a kind of mind-brain identity thesis. But I think that thesis is uh, wrong. And to, to bring that out, <clears throat> I guess I'd like to imagine uh, someone who's a subject of the scientific experiment. <clears throat> She's volunteered you know, to advance the cause of science to come in for regular brain scans. And over the months that this experiment has been running, scientists have found an invariable correlation between a certain activation of Gail, let's call her Gail's brain, and her tasting coffee. Every time she drinks a cup of coffee, they see, oh, okay, the neurons in this part of the cortex are firing in a characteristic pattern. Um, does this mean that we can identify the firing of the neurons with the taste of coffee. 
Well, there's reason to think that we can't. And it's like this. Suppose that Gail comes in for her daily uh, brain scan. This time she's eating an ice cream cone instead of drinking a cup of coffee. They hook her up to the machines. They find the same characteristic brain activity that has always been correlated with the drinking of coffee while she's actually tasting ice cream. The scientists ask her, well, Gail, you know, what does it feel like now? Doesn't it feel like you're drinking coffee? That's what our brain scans seem to be telling us. She says, no, no, it's not. I, I, don't, I don't have any taste of coffee. Uh, I'm not having that experience at all. I've got just a plain vanilla ice cream taste. Now, at this point, the scientists are going to have to go back and, and revise their theory. They won't be able to say, okay, we know what. We've identified a certain bit of brain activity with the taste of coffee because now they've got that same brain activity without the experience. They're going to have to go back and revise their account of what the brain activity says. You might think at some point there would be a complete physiology. The scientists would have done enough research that they could get it right. That, they, that is, they'd have totally well-established correlations between brain activity and the experience of the subject. So in other words, effectively, by doing a scan of someone's brain, you could read their mind and tell everything that they were thinking just by looking at which neurons were firing where. Right, right. Now, if this were true, if we could just read off mental activity from looking at a scan of brain activity, then I think we'd have to say that a brain in a vat could think because we could read off the physiological activity if it matched up with the physiological activity that we've identified as having such and such thoughts and having such and such experiences, then we'd have to say the case of the, in the case of the brain, it's having those thoughts and experiences too. But I think if we go back to what you, the, the way you just formulated it, in fact, we can never just read off the mental state of someone from the readings of her brain activity. And the reason is something that I was trying to bring out with the example of Gail eating an ice cream cone when the scanner seems to say she's having a different experience, the experience of drinking coffee. There's a logical priority going on here. There's a, in terms of figuring out what someone is experiencing or what she's thinking, or our way, way of accessing what she is thinking, is through, well, the ordinary clues that we use in making sense of each other all the time. So what she says preeminently in this case. There may be other signs, too, the way she's acting, <clears throat> the perceptual situation that she's in, the kind of environmental information that we think she's taking in. We use those criteria to identify someone's mental state. The most that the brain scanning scientists can come up with is a correlation between stuff going on in the brain and the mental states that are revealed in the ordinary way in this case, by what she says. They can't identify those. If you try to identify them, that would raise the possibility that, I mean, as soon as you say, okay, there is an identity between this set of brain states and this mental state, I mean, that would seem to commit you to saying, the brain scanner says you're having a coffee taste. So you're having a coffee taste, despite the fact that she's eating a vanilla ice cream cone and saying it tastes like vanilla. And that's absurd. Right. So in other words, if we were scanning someone's brain as she was eating ice cream, and from all we could tell from the scan, she was experiencing the flavor of coffee, but you know, it was clear to us that actually she was eating vanilla ice cream, and from what she reported to us, she was experiencing the flavor of vanilla ice cream. It would be the brain scans that would be taken to be at fault, not her testimony that this is the experience she's having. Just because in that situation, it's clear that she's eating vanilla ice cream. Right. But that's the experience she's having. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, I'm trying to make the claim that 
attributing mental states to someone is one kind of thing. You know, what it is to be a mental state, a belief, a, a desire, an experience, a perception, is one kind of thing. And what it is to be in a certain physiological state is a different kind of thing. In brief, to say that someone is having a certain thought or experience is to locate them in what Wilfred Sellers calls the logical space of reasons, which is a kind of code word in this area of philosophy for saying that be in a particular mental state to have a certain belief, experience, etc., is for that state to stand in certain normative relationships to other states. So if you have a particular belief, say the belief that it's raining outside, that stands in a normative relationship of, say, explaining some of your behavior, taking an umbrella out with you. It commits you rationally to certain other inferences, such as if you stand outside for a long period of time, you'll get wet. That's a conclusion that follows from this. That's what it is to have that belief, at least in part, is to, to stand in these normative relationships. And they're normative relationships to perceptions. Certain perceptions justify the belief. It's also normative relationships to actions. Your beliefs and desires cohere rationally so as to rationalize, to explain, or to justify the actions that you take. So the, the space of the mental, space of mental concepts, is one structured by these normative relationships. The brain states are identified by totally different criteria. Brain states are identified by, I think we can say broadly speaking, their causal relationships to other brain states. What is a particular brain state? Well, it's something that scientists can identify through their instrumentation and that they can understand as causally connected to other brain states. And these two things come apart. There's no way to bring these two levels of description together. That's um, what I mean in denying the identity thesis. Now, having said all that, I want to allow that we can establish correlations. And so, and I think this is something that can bring about what's actually a fairly widespread confusion in this area. It's not just philosophy, it's also in jurisprudence and other areas of thought. That, you know, suppose I get a brain scanner that allows me to make extremely accurate, you know, that, that I've, I've confirmed time and time again that someone in such and such a brain state is having such and such an experience. Maybe someone in such and such a brain state or such and such a physiological state is telling a lie. I could have a correlation that is established with 100% a confirmation and that I have total confidence in. I could say, all right, my brain scanner says the defendant is lying, so I infer that he is in fact lying. That's a legitimate possibility, and that would be a legitimate inference. However, that doesn't mean that what it is to lie can be identified with the brain state. And we can see that if we imagine the forensic scientists applying their machine to me, holding up an article of jewelry in front of me and saying, is this a watch? I say, yes, it's a watch. The brain scan says, ah, he's lying. The brain scanner comes up, he's lying. We'd say, there's a fault with the brain scanner. The subject is not lying in this case. That's a, a reflection of what I was mentioning earlier by saying, we have a grip on what it is to tell a lie that's grounded in our ordinary criteria for determining whether something is true or false, whether someone is lying or not. And that that's the, the, sort of the obvious application of that, those criteria. That when the application of those criteria is clear, that will always trump whatever the machine is telling us about the state of the person. Right. So maybe another way to put this point about mental states occupying the space of reasons, maybe another way to say that would be there's this sense that mental states can be correct or incorrect, whereas brain states, it's not really clear um, what it would mean to say that a brain state is correct or incorrect. You know, if I have a belief that I am in Chicago, 
that's right or that's wrong. You know, either I am in Chicago or I'm not. But if these little bits of my brain are lighting up, well, I, you know, how can you even say that that's correct or incorrect? I mean, they lit up because some other bits of my brain lit up before. And so we can talk about how they relate to one another, but it doesn't really make sense to talk about these physical facts that we're describing as being incorrect or correct in the way that we talk about beliefs we have about what is the case being correct or incorrect. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's a great way of bringing out the difference in the conceptual spaces, the one space in which we make sense of beliefs and desires and the one in which we make sense of physiology. A causal, you know, a sequence of physiological states just is what it is. There's some causal connections that explains why the brain moves from one state to another. But there's no notion of going right or going wrong that we could apply to those uh, causal relationships. So maybe we can think about bringing this back to the skeptic's question. Sure. So this was going to be part of an argument to the effect that the person who wants to come along and say, you don't know that you're not a brain in the vat, isn't completely clear about what he's saying. Or at least I took it that that was where this was going. Is that approximately right? Right. So yeah, I think to kind of exactly to bring this argument around to its bearing on brain and vat skepticism, you know, if we could always use the presence of certain physiological states in a brain, if we could always correlate those with having certain experiences, then we could do so in the case of the brain. And we could say, okay, we see these, the brain in the vat, I mean, we see these states of brain physiology, so we can infer the presence of certain mental states and experiences. But what the point of the lie detector example and the Gale example shows is that our grounding for any claim in correlation, uh, of correlation between brain state and experience, is grounded in our ability to independently ascertain the experience and see that that correlates with the brain state, which is individuated and identified on its own physiological terms. But by hypothesis in the brain in Nevada example, we can't do that. We don't have any way to assess what experience the brain might be undergoing apart from its physiological doings. Since we have no grounds for identifying a correlation in the brain in the vat between its brain physiology stuff and experience, because we don't have any independent access to what experience it might be undergoing, the presence of certain physiological conditions doesn't ground the claim that the brain is having experiences. So we started out this part of the discussion by saying, look, the presence of brain activity can be identified with thoughts and experiences. Or if it can't be identified with thoughts and experiences, at least the brain activity can be correlated with thoughts and experiences. And so we can attribute thoughts and experiences to the brain in a vat. I want to say that when we understand the logical difference between attributing thoughts and experiences and attributing physiological states to a brain, we see that, in fact, there is no ground for attributing thoughts and experiences to the brain in the vat. So this argument that seemed to provide support for the claim the brain is thinking, in fact, provides no such support. That's not the end of the story, because this still, the fact that we have no reason to say that the brain is thinking doesn't prove that the brain is not thinking. It says, you know, we don't have an argument to support that claim. So here we are, sitting in front of a table, and a brain-in-the-vat skeptic comes along and says, you don't really know you're sitting in front of the table. Your response to that is going to be, instead of, well, no, this is how I know I'm sitting in front of a table, it's going to be something like, I just don't think, you know, either you or I are clear about what situation it is that I don't know that I'm in, supposedly. Mm -hmm. It's not clear that that situation you're imagining is even really coherent or something that we can imagine. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. and so this, that's a further claim, which I haven't, haven't tried to ground yet. But I'll say a little bit about why I think we should accept that. So this is a more radical claim that we actually have reasons to deny the claim that brains and vats might think. And to develop this argument, 
I'm employing a couple of thoughts that I draw from the work of John McDowell. And one of the master thoughts that I take from John McDowell's work, and I'm referring to his book Mind and World primarily, is that for a thought or belief to be about an object, to be about reality, to be world-directed at all, for it to have that empirical content, it's necessary that the correctness or incorrectness of the thought be answerable to how things are. So for me to have the belief that there's a coffee cup on the table, it at least requires that the correctness or incorrectness of my thought be answerable to the facts. <laughs> whether, uh, whether there's a coffee cup or there or not, that fact is going to determine the correctness or not of my thought about the coffee cup. One of the main projects in McDowell's work is to explain how our thought does have empirical content because, on his account, we are able to grasp facts about our environment directly. And so that grasp of the fact, when I do grasp it, provides justification for my beliefs and the possibility of my so grasping facts gives my thought its empirical content. If we accept that line of thought in McDowell, the, oh, and then, then incidentally in McDowell there's a parallel thought, which I think is less developed but is present in mind and world, and that's a thought that something similar goes for action. Well, let's look at it from the subject's point of view. There's some close connection between intention and action. McDowell's claim is that in order for something to be an intention, it has to be normatively related to action, to overt activity, he says, in much the same way as for something to be a belief, it has to be related to the possibility of justification by how things are. In order for something to be an intention, it has to be an intention. It has to sort of determine, in some sense, the correctness or incorrectness of subsequent action. In other words, the subsequent activity of the agent either fulfills or fails to fulfill an intention. And this is possible McDowell is arguing only if that there can be overt activity that stands in this normative relationship to the intention. So let's say I intend to go for a walk, and the time comes to either walk or not walk. The question whether I'm indeed now walking will be evaluated with respect to my intention to go for a walk. Is it the case that I'm walking now? Well, let's check to see what I intended. Is that what I intended? So in other words, the intention sets up the criteria by which the actions performed in the light of that intention are evaluated. I, I like that last way that you just put it, that if I intend to go for a walk at 1 o'clock this afternoon, then when 1 o'clock comes around, that intention is either going to be fulfilled or not fulfilled by me. And the fact that I've got that intention, that it is an intention, is for it to make that kind of normative determination. That what I do at that point, my overt activity, is either the fulfillment or the failure to fulfill the intention. There's one particular normative relationship. It's not all the normative relationships that are relevant here, but it's one particular normative relationship which you know, makes the intention the intention at all and makes it the particular intention that it is. And now the, the issue that I want to discuss is what happens if we try to apply these ideas about the nature of beliefs and intentions. What if we try to apply this to a brain in a vat? So in the thought experiment, we're supposed to imagine that the brain in the vat has sort of the full range of mental states that you and I have. The only difference is it's disconnected from its environment. It's not disconnected from its environment, environment totally because it's wired up to the computer and it's sitting in a vat of nutrients to keep it alive. But it is disconnected from its environment in the sense that the beliefs that are formed in it are not rationally answerable for their justifiability to 
how things are in the world because it's not connected to how things are in the world. There is no sort of fact-tracking capacity in the disembodied brain. Yeah, the brain isn't sensing anything. It's not detecting anything. It's just being fed stuff. Exactly, right. right. And then that's if we think about, you know, the input side. And then on the output side, is the brain engaging in any overt activity? Well, you might say, well, the brain is sending electrochemical outputs down its uh, motor neurons, say, that are, of course, hooked up to the computer in the complicated way imagined in the scenario. So the brain is, you know, sending electrochemical outputs. Is that action? The Magdalian line of thought I'm developing would say that that's not. There is no overt activity there. That what we've got is, if we're, again, if we're trying to conduct the thought experiment, trying to imagine this, we're imagining intentions. The brain, you know, intends to reach out and pick up the cup of coffee on the table. But that intention doesn't stand in any uh, justifying relationship to overt activity. The intention, as we're imagining it, is connected only to the stimulation of output neurons. And so the intention lacks that connection to overt activity that McDowell thinks is part of it being an intention at all. And so we try to imagine that the brain in the vat has beliefs, experiences, that it draws inferences, makes judgments, that it forms intentions. But in fact, it's not meeting the necessary conditions for having beliefs on the one hand. It's not meeting the necessary conditions for having intentions on the other. Its putative beliefs lack the connection to facts that would give them empirical content. That's to say they have no content. That's to say they're not beliefs. Likewise, the intentions lack the connection to overt activity that would give them content. That's to say they're intentions without content, which is to say they're not intentions at all. So we set out attempting to imagine a brain in the vat possessing a full range of mental life. We end up saying that, well, we can't really follow through on that. We can't, when we think about what it is to have a mental life, we see that the brain in the vat doesn't meet those conditions. And so we have to conclude that it doesn't have a mental life. You know, if we accept this conclusion that a brain in a vat doesn't have a a mental life, we've undermined one support for skepticism. Because a way that we were generating skepticism is by appealing to the scenario, saying, look, the experience you're having could be that of a brain in a vat. Well, brain in vats don't have experience. So that thesis is wrong, that your experience could be identical to that of a brain in a vat. So we have no reason to think that the argument for skepticism falls apart at that point. So I, w- I want to say just a little bit about the place of this argument that brains and vats don't think in a bigger anti-skeptical strategy. There are several skeptical scenarios out there that all function in basically the way I described to generate skepticism. I mentioned the dream argument, mentioned brain and vat argument. We could talk about evil genius argument, also from Descartes' first meditation. Well, you know, I've just been talking about one of those skeptical scenarios, and my strategy has been to undermine the intelligibility of that scenario so that we don't have to worry about the skepticism that generates it. That leaves these other scenarios untouched. Maybe, you know, so maybe I've shown that brains and vats don't think or have experience. What about the dream scenario? Isn't it still a live possibility? Isn't that something that could generate skepticism? I think that these other scenarios have to be separately addressed. I think they're similar considerations that can be used to argue for the claim that dreamt experience is not, in fact, experience in the epistemologically relevant sense. But that's going to be a somewhat different argument. So my approach to these skeptical scenarios is to look at each one carefully, really think through the presuppositions that are tacit in the imagining of the scenario, 
my general argument of strategy is to show that that careful attention to the presuppositions makes us realize that the scenario is not, in fact, coherent or intelligible. But it's piecemeal. None of this is going to amount to a global and permanent defeat of skepticism in all possible guises. It's dealing with skeptical scenarios as they arise and trying to defuse them as they come. So it's a kind of bottom-up way of dealing with skepticism rather than a top-down. So I think one question that it's natural to have about skepticism is generally we aren't skeptics. You know, we go through our day-to-day lives without questioning whether this bus that I'm hopping on is really there. Why should someone be worried about answering the skeptic? Good. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'll suggest a couple of ways that you can think about it. I mean, one way, and this is a kind of response that I often get when I tell people I'm working on skepticism, they say, well, you know, skepticism, that's something that philosophers get all exercised about, but has no practical relevance. No, you know, there's there's never been a real skeptic. You can't think that skepticism is a real problem and still get on with your daily life. The fact that we all of us, philosophers included, go through their uh, daily lives, eating, drinking, teaching, etc., shows that there isn't a real problem with skepticism. It's a philosophical, you know, it's an artifact of philosophical argumentation. It can look sometimes like a problem that, that we devote our intro to philosophy classes generating a problem where students didn't have one before, and then spend our upper-level philosophy courses showing how those are only the illusions of problems or they weren't really problems to begin with. So you can think, well, it looks like philosophy is just in the business of creating diseases so that it can then try to cure them. You know, there may be a little something to that, but that's not the whole story. Because I think that the reflection on skepticism has some deep motivations. And the issue of skepticism has some deep motivations. I think Stanley Cavell, in The Claim of Reason, is very good at excavating the features of human life that tend to generate skepticism. It's not just an artifact of taking a philosophy course that people worry about skepticism. It's a line of thought that can occur to anyone and does occur to a lot of people. Maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe this world is illusory. You know, maybe I'm completely out of touch with reality and just, you know, living in a self-contained fantasy world. There's something in our nature, uh, something kind of natural to our self-reflection on our epistemological capacities that can induce skepticism. And then I think in ways that we don't always appreciate, skepticism informs a range of thought about human beings and their connection to the world. The problem of skepticism is not just an issue for epistemology, but it shapes the way philosophers describe human nature. It often shapes the way philosophers describe the way language works, the nature of the human mind. So the problem of skepticism, it ramifies throughout philosophy, and I think in ramifying throughout philosophy, it carries over and has consequences for lots of sort of non-philosophical thought. So, I mean, to just mention one small example, I think the idea that going back to my earlier discussion of brain scanning and mental state attributions, I think you can actually find kind of widespread assumption or a widespread faith that at some level, you know, a brain scanner could tell somebody else that brain scans could in some level supersede our ordinary ways, our current ways of understanding one another. That's a thought that is not just confined to philosophy. You find it in thought about law. You find it in terms of what science can show about the brains of criminals. You find it in thought about the role of free will in legal and and moral responsibility. These are cases where there are certain philosophical confusions that 
in more or less non-understood ways arise from reflections about skepticism. So if we can get straight about how skepticism works and ways to argue against skepticism, we can block these confusions that permeate out from philosophy into other real-life areas of concern. Edward Witherspoon, thank you very much for joining us. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for the interview, Matt. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.